I actually do it the same way that Charles does it. You know, just beef up the server. <laughs> just, yep, just log into DigitalOcean. <laughs> I wait till about 10 at night. Log into DigitalOcean. Tell it to uh, make it better. <laughs> Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 290 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Brian Hogan. Hello. Jason Sweat. Hello. Jerome Hardaway. Hey everybody. Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. And uh, yeah, this week we're going to be talking about deployment. We're going to have a geek fight, I think. It should be interesting anyway to see what the trade-offs are. So I'm curious, uh, just to go down the line, and we'll start with Jerome since I introduced everybody in the other order. Um, what what have you done with deployments? Like, what have you used? For deployments, I've used uh, Git, I've used Capistrano, and I have uh, used Heroku just for, like, smaller projects, uh, mostly hackathons. But for professional projects, it's usually Capistrano. Capistrano 2, Capistrano 3, those are the big ones. Uh, there was one project I had that I had to use AWS, and I absolutely um, I did not like it. So that is, those are the only things I use to deploy Rails apps. I hear you. How about you, Jason? I've used pretty much exclusively Heroku for the last however many years. Um, and before that, I would just use like, um, I'll, what do you call it, VPS and, and do it kind of manually. But for the last like four or five years, I've used almost exclusively Heroku, because I just like to uh, I like to be able to not really think about it and just get it done, and then never worry about it again. Nice. How about you, Brian? So I still continue to use Capistrano too um, because of some of the features it has, and you know, with the, with the exception of places where I'm doing something with Heroku, that's pretty much what I reach for. I'll just go and grab a, a script that I've used for a previous app and change a few variables, and there, I don't have to think about it. I can just type the command, and it's deployed, and I can run the migrations and all the other things. It's amazing how, uh, you know, so how many how many of these things in, in the Ruby land have changed, but, you know, something that's like Capistrano still works today, and I, I think that's pretty fascinating myself. Awesome. As far as my experience goes, yeah, I've done Heroku. I've set up things so I can just get push, and it deploys. Um, I've used Capistrano 2 and 3. Um, most recently three, um, I just, you know, I haven't seen the need to stay on two, but we can talk about that. And, um, I've done a little bit with Docker, not a ton. I'm not an expert, but I have done a little bit with Docker as well for deployments. So. And, and I've had AWS, uh, um, but again, somebody else set that up. It was a Royal pain in the rear. I'm with you on that one, Jerome. And, uh, yeah, somehow they magicked it up whenever I needed it magic. So yeah, so should we start with the simplest case and talk about Heroku then? Sure. Yeah. So Heroku just seems to know what to do. So you get push it and it does the build most of the time. Pretty much, and you can definitely run into snags. Um, and and just a quick note as far as that goes, like I've worked on projects where they didn't set up the production environment until like six months into the project. And that's a really bad idea because if you do run into snags and you're like six months in, then the problem might lie anywhere in that six months worth of work 
So it's a really good idea to get your production environment set up like on day one or at least as early as possible because that's like if anything goes wrong, there's a lot less code to to debug. Um, so yeah, definitely definitely get that started as early as you can because you might run into snags like with the asset pipeline and stuff, but chances are anything you're going to encounter has been encountered by somebody else before you and you can pretty easily find the answer on Stack Overflow or whatever. Yeah, that's a really good point. One of the things that you got to remember when you're using Heroku is you're going to use the Postgres database. Um, yeah, that's that's what they use and that's what you should be using on your development boxes too. Um, and because you're going to end up with you're going to end up with problems if you don't. Uh, that that's based on personal experience. Uh, I won't go into those details, but I will say that uh, you really want to have as much of the as much of the production environment as you can um, in your development environment too. So that, that and, and then just continuously pushing to your production environment during that development process, just so you can make sure that those problems right. aren't going to crop up. That that whole concept of of dev prod parity, right? have your development environment and your production environment as similar as possible. Right. And there's kind of two ways we, we touched on there. One is like the, the technologies and the configuration between the two. Like if you use PostgreSQL in production, then you should use it in development too. Or at least like you can expect to have fewer, fewer database specific problems if you're using the same RDBMS in production and development. So that's that's one thing is the technologies, but then also just like the difference in code. If you're deploying once a week, you're going to have a lot fewer issues probably than if you only deploy once every three months. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, the other thing is, is that, I mean, even on systems where it's not Heroku, you also just have to keep in mind that... Um, there's nothing worse than getting ready to release V1 and the whole company is watching and there's an issue with the deployment. Like the app works fine, but for whatever reason you just can't get it to the server. I mean, that, yeah. that just sucks. And then it's like, oh, well, we didn't account for this, that, and the other when we actually built the app. If you start out with your deployment setup uh, on day one, then you're much better off because you're going to hit those issues right away and you're going to have a consistent uh, setup and environment and con set of concerns uh, for the long haul. Yeah, it's yeah. really it's really you know exciting to jump into the code base on a greenfield app, right? It's like oh, I want to get in here and write the code. But if you look at what a lot of professional teams do, they they spend that 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 they call it iteration zero in some places where they set up their they set up the repository. They set up their continuous deployment environment. They make sure that everything is going so they can hit the ground running so that it's just all the work is out of the way. Just getting all that set up at once so that you can, when you're when you're deploying that V1, you can do it with confidence because you've already deployed it 10,000 times already. Yeah. And this one, this last one is just for show. Exactly. And, and another thought connected to that is like, if you just dive in and start developing and then present it to the stakeholders, present your like first little bit of progress to the stakeholders, that might give them like a false, um, a false sense of the pace of progress that they can expect. Because like if you just show them your, your development environment directly after like a week's worth of development, um, you can't actually deploy that to production without some work in between. Um, and so they might like 
they might set their expectations more optimistically uh, than than they really should based on that early, apparently really fast progress. Um, but if you if you take that time in the beginning to set up all your infrastructure stuff, um, you know that's going to be slower, but it sets a little bit more like realistic um, pace expectation right off the bat. One other thing I'm just going to jump in with, I lied. There is something worse than getting your app ready and then not being able to deploy it, and that is getting it deployed and then not being able to roll it back. And if you have your deployment set up, tested, and ready to go, a lot of times you're set up so that you can just roll it back. So if something's broken in an embarrassing or insecure way, you could just pull it back out, no harm, no foul, fix it up, and then push it back. Yeah, and that's another argument for the dev prod parity thing again. Like, if you deploy a bad deployment, and the last time you deployed was yesterday, like the last time you did a good deployment was yesterday, then it's probably not going to be a huge deal to roll back to then. But if you work for three months and then try to deploy three months worth of work and it doesn't go well, it's probably going to be a lot harder to roll that back. Yeah, one other thing that I'm going to point out while we're talking about this is that I've been in the deployment hell where um, we basically had to go through the IT staff in order to get stuff deployed because we were dealing with government data and there were all these rules about who could access and how they could access and, and all that stuff. So yeah, that sucks. Yeah, the deployment basically went through, um, if we had a new gem to install, they had to convert the gem to an RPM, which is a package for Red Hat Linux and then they would go and uh, put it in a repository after they'd looked through all the code in the gem, and then they would deploy it. And if, if you've got processes like that that go on every time you deploy, you have to know about them up front. And so this just straightens all that garbage out so that if you're dealing with something like HIPAA or government data where there are regulations about the way that you can store it and deal with it and who can get access to the server, you want to get that out of the way first thing so that you just know okay, when we deploy, it's going to take two days because they have to go through and look at stuff. By the way, that, uh, that reminds me of a, a real quick story that I want to tell. Um, so I worked at this, this startup once where we, we built this tool. We spent like six months, or at least the original deadline was, was six months. We started in January, and the original deadline was like uh, July 1st. But it got pushed back to like October something. But we finally, finally were finished sometime in October. And they had this launch party because they hadn't deployed it to production yet. They had this launch party where they got everybody together in the conference room and they, they showed this video of a shuttle launch on TV and they had like noisemakers. And they had, um, this was a terrible idea, but they had fireworks that they lit off inside, um, which it like made the conference room all, all smoky and everybody had to leave. Um, but they had this huge party for the production release. And then about a half an hour later, somebody's like, Oh, Hey, uh, we just got a call. It's not working. And they had to like, it, it ended up not, um, they had to roll it back and like, it was a total no go. So I guess just like a case in point, as far as uh, deploy early, and after you deploy early, deploy, deploy frequently after that. 
So if we want to talk about that, you know, it's probably a good good time to ask what what do you do for continuous deployment? Whether are there certain tools that that you all favor uh, that you all go to as sort of your tool set for getting a continuous environment going? Do you use like a do you use sort of like you know uh, continuous integration stacks that that you know do a deployment whenever there are certain pushes to branches, or do you do it in sort of a more manual approach? What do you all do? I've used Circle CI in the past. And I like that. Um, and yeah, I've, I've set it so that when it um, when the test pass, it automatically deploys on some projects. But usually, to be honest, the projects I'm working on are like legacy projects that just don't have the test coverage that would allow that kind of thing. Um, so usually, that doesn't come into the picture for me. Sure, I mean that's more that's more real world, right? I mean, it's, it's, we're we're not all living in the in the fantasy land of you know the the perfect the perfect web application's got the full test coverage that you can only deploy and the tests are all green. You know, so if you have those legacy apps, you know, you know what what kinds of things do you do with those and, and the best you can, right? Yeah, I've so I've I've done, taken kind of half measures on that. Um, you know, another tool you can you can use disclaimer they sponsor the show SnapCI by ThoughtWorks. It's kind of the same thing, um, and I've actually done it where if I push to a particular branch, like the production branch, and then all the tests pass, and that way I do have my sanity check on there. But I've probably run it in staging your development and checked it out manually first before I actually pushed those changes into the production branch if I don't have automated tests around it. Um, though I've become more and more of a fan of making, you know, just writing the automated tests because I ha if it takes me an hour to write automated tests and it takes me a half hour to do the test manually, I only have to write the automated test once to save myself three manual tests in order to start saving myself time and effort. And so I will start writing tests around this stuff that I am routinely checking. Um, but that said, yeah, sometimes you don't have a full test suite around stuff and so yeah then I just kind of give it a quick sanity check um, you know maybe I'll write a quick selenium test that runs through kind of the the main paths of the application just to make sure that they work and then yeah if those pass on the production branch then I'll have it deploy. I had a horrible um, legacy app with deployment um, the way it was set up was just disgusting and the company didn't want any testing, they didn't want any of the newfangled, uh, <laughs> the current tools being used on like how to make things better. So every time I did something, I had to do it old school. I had to go through, uh, physically upload, go through the FTP, physically upload the files, clear the, uh, clear the cache um, from the gem, and then physically like reboot and restart the app every time and the uh, app was so large it would take like 10 to 15 minutes for everything to go through it was a complete nightmare i like circle ci like uh i also have a second of circle ci uh with uh jason but uh there are a lot of nightmare scenarios so i think it's best to know how to do it uh, when it comes to deployment the absolute horrible uh, way that none of us do it anymore, but um, if you can, I always try to talk to see these these, uh, these cooler or like these better tools, but 
it just hearing you, know, you guys talk about the legacy apps you worked on just brought like nightmares to me. Like I just well, Jeremy, you food. touched on something interesting there, um, and this might be too much of a tangent, but it sounds like that that particular employer they like were officially anti testing. Is that right? Because they they didn't care. They were yeah. uh, an SEO company that ended up becoming like this uh, legacy. Uh, this legacy apps technology partner, so they did not care about any of the tools or any of that nature. Just hurry up, get it out as fast as you can, keep these clients happy, and then you know they didn't care about doing it the right way; they just cared about getting it done. Yeah, I, I, I worked for a client once who was he was not just like apathetic toward testing, but he was officially anti-testing, and like I was not allowed to write tests. And I just wanted to kind of bring that question up real quick. What do you guys think, you know, what should you do when, when your boss or your client or whatever has like, has like a rule of, of don't write tests? My opinion is kind of just don't work for those people. But I wanted to know what, what you guys think, because that's, that's a pretty integral part of, um, you know, you don't want to deploy an app that, that hasn't been tested. So, so can I, I want to. Can I answer that by telling a little little tiny story that my dad told me? He 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 tuned pianos. That was what he did for kind of a, a business on the side while, while I was growing up. And he would he would ask people when they said, "Hey, you tune pianos? Would you tune my piano?" And he would ask, "When was the last time you had your piano tuned?" And uh, and if they said, you know, you know, had it done six months ago, he'd be like, oh, yeah, I'll be over tomorrow to, to tune your piano. But he said, yeah, we've never had it. We had it for 12 years. We've never had it tuned. He would turn the job down because he knew that if he went in there and he tuned that piano, because of the way the pianos are made, the tuning would slip in a couple of days. And they would think it was his fault. They would think he didn't do a good job. Uh, and so that's, that's kind of, that lesson's always kind of stuck with me when it comes to software development. You know, if I'm writing software and I don't have my my a way to verify that the work I'm doing is good, well, when it breaks, they're not going to blame Bob, the previous developer who wrote that terrible code. They're going to blame Brian, the guy who exactly. just changed that code. They're going to blame me, and that's going to be it's going to be a mark against my you know my professional rec, uh, reputation. It's going to reflect poorly upon me at that job and maybe in future jobs. So I try to very much avoid those kinds of situations, and if I can't. I will write the damn tests anyway. Let's take a break from this episode and really quickly talk about finding a job. You know, searching for a job can feel stressful, scary, and time-consuming. Pushy recruiters try to sell you on roles you don't actually want, and the job boards make you feel like you're throwing your resume into a black hole never to be seen again. And sometimes you go all the way through an interview process just to find out that the very end that the salary offer or company culture doesn't match what you're looking for. Well, there's a solution. Hired.com is the world's most intelligent talent-matching platform for full-time and contract opportunities. They make the job search faster, focused, and stress-free instead of endlessly applying to companies and hoping for the best. Hired puts you in control of how and when you connect with compelling opportunities. And after completing one simple application, top employers apply to you. And the best part is, is that you get money. That's right. They pay you if you get a job through them. Listeners to this show can earn double their normal hiring bonus by signing up with the show's link. That's right. You get $2,000 instead of $1,000. So go sign up at Hired.com slash Ruby Rogues Podcast. I was going to say, yep. I've, I've been in that position and I just wrote the tests. Um, I've had clients that said, I don't want to pay you for the time to write the tests. 
And, uh, you know, unfortunately I've taken clients like that. Um, but yeah, I just write the tests anyway. And I just explain to them, look, this is the way that I know that I'm giving you value. And, you know, some of them don't like that and they feel like it's a waste of time and others do. Um, but yeah, I've also had employers where, yeah, basically we just had the conversation and it was like, look, um, you're paying me to write this code and you're paying me to write code that works and this is how I make sure it works. I have always had uh, a good success by spinning it around and saying, you're not really paying me to write code, you're paying me to solve your problem and the particular way that I solve your problem is with code that I write. Mm -hmm. um, it's going to take me just as long to write this code with tests or without tests because if I don't write tests, then I'm going to be staring at a web browser and filling in your forms repeatedly for you. And you'll be paying me for that time. So you're going to be paying me to, to solve your problem. Let me solve the problem. Yeah, I saw a quote in uh, Avdi Grimm's newsletter that he sent around, and it was basically, yeah, uh, people are paying you to solve a problem, and the code is just a nasty byproduct. Yep, that's true. Um, and, and I read this other quote one time that said something like, uh, you shouldn't invest time in developing the skill of working with bad clients. Um, like just kind of, kind of like your story, Brian, with, with your dad turning those jobs down of, of tuning the pianos that had never been tuned. Uh, like just, just don't work for those people. I like that. That's a, I think that's going to be my new motto. Well, it's, 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 it's something that you have to, you do have to measure though. You have to temper that a little bit because sometimes you just don't have the choice, right? There are, there are people right. who are listening to this podcast. They don't have the ability to just pick up and move and take a different job to work with better people. They're stuck in those situations. So what kinds of advice can we give those kinds of people who are stuck deploying a Rails application through FTP or, uh, you know, deploying an application that they don't have confidence in that they can roll back. What kind of advice can we offer those people? I mean, it's easy for some of us to say, yeah, I'll just get another job. I'll just go work for a different person. And it's important to understand that not everybody's in that situation. So what, what can That's we do very for true. those people? Well, I think ultimately um, one thing that I found, you know, sometimes you have an unreasonable boss and there's just nothing you can do. But again, I mean, just having conversations, you know, as we've talked about some of these things where you explain the value of doing what you're doing so that you can mitigate some of the risk, you know? So yeah, you know, have a plan. I mean, even if it is through FTP and it's not easy to roll back, you know, just having a way to roll back or, you know, talking to them and just saying, look, you know, um, sometimes some of this stuff happens. And so we need the automated tests just to make sure, just give us a sanity check before we push something out. And, you know, uh, the other thing I've also been able to do is just say, look, um, let's try it for a month. And then if it turns out it's a big fat waste of time, then we'll quit doing it. But if we see our bug rates go down or, you know, some other measurement of success go up, then, you know, then we'd like to keep doing it. And a lot of times they're willing to risk a month where you spend an extra 45 minutes a week or something on something like this that may or may not pay off. Yeah, there have been there have been times where uh, you know where I've kind of done those sort of things. I'll I'll just spend a weekend, um, you know, off off the clock on my own time, setting up this stuff so I can deliver that kind of a quick win. Because I don't want to be you know spending a week setting up a CI and, and lose a week lose a uh, some of the, lose some time out of the month. So I'll just sort of do that. I'll say I'm gonna I'm gonna set this up my own time, bring it in, and we're gonna you know now we're gonna use it, and we can I can prove I can demonstrate to you that this will this will save us time. 
sometimes you have to do that because it makes your it makes your life a little easier down the road. Just like just like you were saying a little bit ago about you know you do have to um, you know put that a little put that a little even if you're not going to get paid to write the test, you're still going to write the test because it's going to save you some time. Yep. I've, I've always I've always thought that one of the problems that uh, a lot of software developers run into uh, related to this topic is the feeling the need to be a hero and react and respond so quickly to stakeholders, creating a sort of an artificial um, uh, artificial picture of how long things take. Because if you're delivering code really quickly without tests, and then you start adding tests, you're gonna you're gonna you know externally you're gonna look like you're you're not as productive. Um, so I, I always kind of wonder if that's what the real the real problem is. They we've done things sort of slapdash and haphazard for so long that they the business owners' expectations in a lot of cases are well why are you why test tests slow you down because you're doing you're doing that and we never really factor in we never really account for the time. Uh, we always talk about how we need we need our test suites to be faster. We can see those numbers, but we never really. I mean, who tracks the time you spend in the web browser, clicking through buttons and clicking through forms and verifying that your math was actually correct? Because you don't have tests to do that. You're still verifying it. Somebody's still verifying it. We never track that time. We never uh, we never track it because it's not as easy to see. So I always wonder if that's really the place to push back is to show to show. Hey, let's account for all the time in the development process, not just the writing the code and showing it to you on the screen. Let's account for all that time that we're spending. Yeah, that's a really good point. And I don't know how you kind of factor that because it sounds like one thing that you're saying is like if you if you write code without tests, then in the short term you can implement things faster and demonstrate faster progress to the stakeholders. But then if you if you start writing tests where previously maybe you weren't then the stakeholders might notice uh, a slowdown because it takes longer to write. Now you're not just writing the features, but you're also writing the tests and kind of what do you do about that? Is is that kind of what you're saying? Yeah, I mean, that's, you know, how do you, you know, how, how do we start thinking about that? Because you're, you're, you are, you are testing those features, right? You are really, you know, you are testing those features. Even if you're going to show it to a stakeholder, hopefully you are, doing some sort of verification so when you show it to the stakeholder, it works, right? You're probably pulling up in a browser. You're probably doing that. Mm -hmm. So where does the mismatch come from when, oh, now we're writing tests and now we're slower? You're doing that time. You're doing that. You're doing that testing. Either either one way you're letting the computer do it, but you're writing, you're spending a little bit of your time to write code so the computer can do it for you, or you're doing it manually over and over again. But you're still probably doing, I hope, I hope that's what we're doing as an industry, right? I hope we're actually taking the Kobe right and running it through and making sure that it works in some way. Some people, um, <laughs> but I, I think there's like I think there's like four four levels of of testing. Um, one is like you can have an automated test that that verifies that it works, and that's like the best. Um, or you can you can manually test it yourself and verify that it works that way. Um, and if there's a bug, you'll find it at that level. Or if there's a bug, your, your stakeholder will discover it when your stakeholder is, is evaluating it. Um, or your users find it, and that's how you find out about the bug. And it becomes like increasingly embarrassing and expensive as you go down that, that list. So maybe that's kind of one way to frame it to anybody who's, who's skeptical about the value of, of writing tests. It's like, hey, the testing inevitably happens 
Um, it's just who discovers the bug and at what point do we discover it and how much is it going to cost to find it and fix it. There's a lot of things about a lot a lot of people who you know who have some gripes about some project management software, but one of the things that I've always loved is the project management software that sort of punishes your velocity for having bugs. I always kind of like that. I always think that's kind of a neat little like I know Pivotal Tracker does that. You don't you don't get points for finishing off bugs. So if you spend your whole week on bug fixes, your your velocity can tank. I think that's kind of neat because it does it does show you that, you know, that little little bit of time up front can save you, you know, time. You could be instead of fixing all these bugs, you could be working on new cool things. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that's eventually where you get to is you know, initially there's that slowdown, right, where you're writing the tests and it's not saving you a ton of time. But as time goes on, you spend less time fixing bugs and more time actually solving other problems by building features. Um, I'm going to push us back over toward deployment, though, because we're talking mm-hmm. I mean, we're, we're talking along the edge between testing and deployment. But, um, you know, ultimately deployment's about getting the code onto the server and making it run. So I'm, I'm curious, uh, do you guys typically do the server setup, or do you have someone else do it, and then you just worry about getting the code out there? I do my own server setup. I'm not just, I'm, I'm afraid. I don't want to be involved in a situation where I don't know what is going on based upon the other person's experience or what they do. Everybody, we preach best practices, but people get their experience from different places and they just, you know, they don't know what they don't know. So and you don't know where their background's coming from. So you end up running into this situation where the server is being set up by somebody who's experienced or uh, they're, well, I guess experience be the only way to say it. Their experience is vastly different from yours. Like, you know, say a computer science uh, grad who went the academic route, and to get into software, they have their own unique way of doing things when it comes to a server setup versus self-taught programmers uh, who tend to think very differently than those who go the academic um, route when it comes to learning how to code and making their mistakes and things of that nature. So, you, you know, it's just that's something that's really, really important because how to, when there's a problem that you have to hurry up and fix, you don't have time to go and ask a million questions or find and try to understand what that person did or try to find the person who did the setup. So for me, uh, server, uh, server setup is very important to me and I handle that on my own. I've been doing it with scripts so that my environment is repeatable. Um, as long as I can remember, I've been doing it with scripts, even if it's been, well, I have a physical box here and a bash script that installs all the stuff in it. Just, just so it's repeatable. Because I'll forget important stuff. I'll forget stuff. Um, and if I and there are certain things that you know I've never been able to figure out how to automate. So at least there's like a section in the script that tells you, hey Brian, don't forget to type this command to do something that needs to be done. Um, but that's that's how I do it. Because because I you know I don't I'll learn new things all the time. But what I can do is I I know the limitations of my knowledge related to security and servers. So at least I can take my scripts and run them by other people and they can say, Hey, you forgot about this or you forgot about that. Um, and so that's the thing to me is I don't want to set up. I don't want to manually set up a server each time I have to do an app. I want, I want the process just like my code and my deployment to be repeatable. Um, and I don't know, 
I've, I've heard of one like super, super uh, crazy example that a friend of mine says that they used to have their, their server guy, uh, every app deployment, he used to destroy their virtual machine and rebuild it from scratch because he came from a, a healthcare environment where they wanted to make sure there was no, uh, no data left behind anywhere. So they would always, every time the new version of the app, the, the deployment would literally scrap the box, rebuild it, put the code on it. Yeah, that, that seems a that uh, seems a little extreme, but it's it's honestly kind of cool too when you think about it. Welcome to uh, government and hospitals, man. That's how they do it. <laughs> well, and that's one of the advantages uh, of Docker is just that you know your app environment is all encapsulated in your Docker container, and so yeah, it's like okay, we're deploying uh, the new version of the app, so. You put all the new ones out there, you point your load balancer to all the new instances, and then you just blow the old ones away, um, which is kind of interesting. And so then, you know, basically your database instance is the only thing that's consistently, you know, sticking around. Um, and, and that's kind of interesting. Um, as far as server setups go for me, um, I've done everything from using Chef and Chef Solo uh, down to writing scripts, as Brian said. Um, and I've also just set up my own servers and, you know, deployed stuff to it depending on what I've got going on. I'll say that the nice thing about Chef is that um, the recipes for most of this stuff are kept up to date. And so they'll do a lot of the server hardening and things for you. There's actually a security recipe or two that I use, and I'm trying to remember what they're called. Um, I'll make sure I get links to those in the show notes. But uh, anyway, so they, you know, they restrict access and stuff like that and make it really easy to get things set up. And, uh, yeah, but I, I've, I've run the whole gamut of things. And, uh, yeah, lately, if it's just a toy project, a lot of times I'll just spin up the server and go do a couple of things to install uh, Fusion Passenger on there, and then we're off to the races. But in other cases, if I think it's going to stick around for a little longer, then I'll actually go through the process of setting it up and hardening it up and things like that. Now there's an interesting topic. We talked about the process of deployment, but what are y'all what are y'all using? What are y'all using on your servers? Are you using Passenger? Are you using Unicorn? Are you using Nginx or are you using Apache? What's everybody using? I'm a Passenger Nginx guy. Passenger Nginx. It's easy. Yeah. 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 <laughs> um, I'm I, honestly, I'm still, I'm, I'm uh, doing Passenger and Apache rather than Nginx. So I'm, I'm interested. Con- convince me if, if, if like the listeners, for example, if they're, on, if they're in the same boat as me, convince me why, uh, why Nginx and Passenger is, a, is a, such a great idea. This episode is sponsored by Compose.io. Databases are arguably the most difficult part of the stack to manage. The last thing you want is to wake up at 4 a.m. because the database failed and you have no backups. Compose has all that covered for you, so rest assured your database is fast, reliable, and always on. It's production-ready cloud databases on AWS and GCP for SoftLayer, so go check them out. You can pick from nine databases, including MongoDB, Elasticsearch, Redis, RethinkDB, MySQL, and one of the latest, ScyllaDB, which is a fast drop-in replacement for Cassandra. All databases come with guaranteed RAM, IOPs, and CPU that auto-scale. Automatic daily and on-demand backups, high availability nodes, security you can count on with with private VLAN, IP whitelisting, SSH and SSL, two-factor authentication, and much more. Deploy your database in minutes, and they'll take care of all of the administrative tasks like patches and upgrades. Setup is fast and easy, so go try them out for 30 days free at compose.com slash devchat. I mean, ultimately for me, and this isn't a selling point 
in any way other than the fact that um, I found that the config for Nginx is more friendly, in my opinion, than the one for Apache. And this is um, from me coming from the world where I actually deployed Linux servers with Apache on a regular basis when I was working in IT at the university I attended. So mm -hmm. anyway, I just find it cleaner and easier to use. Um, I've, I've heard all kinds of performance reasons to use Nginx, but ultimately all the servers have just been fast enough for me. So we're good. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> How about you, Jerome? Why Nginx? I was about to speak when my dog is like going insane right now. And, but, but yeah, for me, Nginx is, it's just, it's cleaner, it's easier. And I believe that, you know, just like there are legacy apps or legacy practices. And it was first thing I learned and picked up when it came to Rails. So I, you know, if it's not broke, don't fix it. I try to figure out why go against something that's already fast already moving really well and, and you know and it works for me so why break that um break that cycle and do something different so nobody here is doing any kind of crazy load balancing with a bunch of uh, pumas or unicorn or things like that just sticking with passenger and having a good having good luck with that yeah in my case yes awesome definitely yes here all right excellent excellent and I just let Heroku do its thing, and it works fine for, for pretty much everything that I do. Yeah, the only trade-off I've had with Heroku, I, like I've never actually maxed out a dyno because I move stuff off to a server before I get to that point, but um, I have had them um, put the thread to sleep or kill it or whatever they do with it if it hasn't been used for a while on some of my toy apps. And uh, that's totally fine unless I have people who actually need to access it for business reasons and stuff like that. And I know you can set up demons and stuff so that it will actually, you know, ping it periodically and keep it awake. But if you're going to go to all that effort, just set up a server. Well, and I think most apps that most people are doing are not like uh, really high traffic type things. Like for me, um, they fall under like two categories mostly. One is like an MVP for a startup or something like that. And usually, you know, let's be honest, you build it and then nothing ever happens. And so like the production environment is basically just for the client to, to look at it. Um, and they get very few, if any, actual users on it ever. And then the other case is like um, an internal uh, app for a small business. So like just a small handful of people are using it. And, you know, obviously Heroku is going to be completely adequate for either of those cases. Yeah, I got to say the majority of the applications that I've done in, in my career have been those internal applications with less than 100 users, you know. Um, and we, we always talk, you know, you, you always hear about, oh, you know, Rails can't scale. They the you know, that, that was the, the big talking point. And it still kind of tends to be that, oh, I'm not going to use Rails. It's not fast enough. I'm like, what are you building? Like, literally, what are you, <laughs> what are you, what are you building? Because it, it is, I have been doing this for a long time. And I can tell you that most of the applications I've encountered as a consultant, most of the applications I've encountered as a full-time employee, they've got a hundred users and maybe 10, maybe 10 simultaneous users because, right. you know, that's what, that's what, that's what people need. That they need, they need their problems solved. 
Yeah. And and just quick side note, whenever I have to performance optimize something, uh, the bottleneck is pretty much never the language or the framework. It's usually like they're making too many trips to the database or yep. they have a really slow query that can be written differently. You pretty much never get to the point where it's the language or framework that's, yeah. that's the problem. Yeah, there's so many things going on in a web application that something must be really wrong if your if your 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 choice of language is causing the performance issue. Yep. And you know, if you get to that point, you know, if you have such huge traffic that you really have to like dig really deep to get then that's probably a sign that you're like working for a really successful business that has the money to like deal with that kind of stuff. Yep. So one more thing I've been itching to know about, uh, you know, how, how do you all handle uh, if, if for for those sites that do get do get some traffic? Uh, do you do you throw things like varnish in front? Uh, how do you handle those kinds of caching issues? Are you using um, other services to handle those kinds of things? I've never gotten to the point where I needed to. I mean, um, between uh, you know, I'll just actually I usually just beef up the server so I'll get more memory or. See if I can get faster, or better, more cores, um, and, then, <laughs> and then I'll just use uh, the built-in caching with Rails in a lot of cases, and that's that's been good enough. Um, I haven't gotten to the point where I had so much going on that I actually needed something like Varnish in front. Yeah, I usually just use the built-in Rails caching or uh, denormalization of my database tables. Like for example, if there's a if there's a reporting area of the application, like the application I'm working on right now, where we're doing this, um, I'm separating the reporting areas so we're not querying the database in real time. We we like run. I, I actually created a, a a database view for that particular report, and then I load that into a totally separate table that just exists for reporting purposes. And then I query that table, which is totally denormalized. So a combination of, of the Rails cache and denormalization. Yeah, Rails took away one of my uh, one of my favorite features, which was the original uh, page caching feature. I used to use that on a lot of on a lot of sites to to uh, for things that you didn't have people logged in for. You know, you could you could whip together a nice little CMS with that. And with that being taken out, uh, and just we're using the the Action caching and the other the other caching layers, you know, I've had to resort to to varnish and things like that. So that's why I was wondering if anybody else is in that same boat. No, I've actually never heard of varnish until now. No, I actually do it the same way that Charles does it. You just beef up the server. <laughs> just <laughs> just yep, beef log up into the server. <laughs> I wait till about ten at night. Log into DigitalOcean. Tell it to uh, make it better. <laughs> <laughs> thought I was the only person that did like the whole late night uh, server side changes. So I'm just gonna wait till everybody's asleep, then I'm gonna mess with this. If you're lucky, if you're lucky enough to be in, to be in an environment where you have a you know you have a, a group you know, an audience that's just uh, you know U.S. centric, for example, right? That that could work if you've got an audience where oh well now now India is hitting the server, uh, then then it becomes a little bit more difficult to find those time zones, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. one of the things we did was we uh, that I absolutely hated, but it kind of worked to my advantage in the end. Was instead of having this huge Rails app that was for different countries, they would make a they would make a different Rails app per country, so we could do things like that depending on their time zones. Like when I wanted to try something 
because his company was anti-TDD and testing and stuff like that, uh, when I wanted to try something out and see if it worked, I would just wait till like Australia was asleep. And then I would mess around and do it on the Australia site because when I was up, they were not up. So by the time I could mess uh, make a change, mess up, figure out what, what I did wrong, and put everything back together, it'd be like 7 o'clock in the morning in uh, Australia, and people were just getting up. So it worked like wonders for me you know, like in that type of environment. But uh, just it's, it's still isn't like my favorite thing to do and you're right like when you have like i know uh eventbrite the way they uh they've done their rails app is you know it's one rails app that it just pings from different countries so it's really hard for them to do things like just make the server space larger so they have to use i can't remember what tool they're using if anything i'll come back and i'll let you guys know and we could probably share it as a add-on to the show Hey, do you need a sanity check on your code? Make sure all the tests are passing. Make sure all the static assets compile. You know, all the normal things that you need to do to make sure that your application is ready for production. Then you need continuous integration, and I recommend SnapCI. SnapCI is a product put together by our friends at ThoughtWorks, and it works great to pull all of your information together about your application, make sure it's ready for production, let your team know if it fails, and overall, just make your life easier. So go check them out at SnapCI.com. All right, I'm going to just talk quickly about some of the ways that we've done deploying. I mean, we've talked about Heroku and, you know, some of the things there. Um, have any of you set things up so that you can just get pushed to your server and then have everything do its thing once you do a get push? I've, I've done that before, but I've, I've, had, um, I've had to kind of mimic Capistrano when I did that. So I'll do a get push, and then I'll have something move it over into another folder, and then I'll have a script sim link that new folder in place, because I couldn't, you know, otherwise I wouldn't be able to roll back. So if there's a better way to do that, I'd love to hear it. No, that's basically what I've done as well. And then you have this monster git hook that, you know, does all yeah. of the things, right? So it, yeah. yeah, it copies it over and then sim links it, and then um, you know, runs all the built scripts and stuff. So Because I, I don't check in the built uh, you know the what is it uh, rails